welcome everyone. My name is Joya Kennedy. I'm the chair for Alliance for Climate Change and Environment. And this event is being recorded for NYU Wagner Review podcast series. I just wanted to read our mission statement since we as a board revised this mission statement really recently and we're very proud of it before I turn things over to Matt Minner, who is the co-events chair for ACE. Um, and this really has been his project. Um, so I'll let him talk more about the event itself. But our mission statement is uh, the Alliance for Climate Change and Environment believes that climate change is the existential crisis of our time and that understanding the intersectionality of environmental policy and sustainability management is critically important to the development of public service professionals at NYU Wagner, regardless of their specialization. We believe that the climate crisis uh, to not only be an environmental issue, but one that is at the backdrop of all policies, including but not limited to race, gender, urban planning, class, and health. To that end, we aim to provide a platform for understanding the nuances of emerging climate policy and advocacy through workshop series, panel events like this one, and actionable community initiatives across NYU and beyond. So with that, I will hand it over to Matt. Great, thanks. Um, yeah, just to preface the event today, we'll be spending about an hour hearing from our panel. Um, and then the last 30 minutes will be allocated for questions from the audience. So uh, feel free to type them in the chat and I'll be kind of directing through in that last 30 minutes. Um, but with that being said, it's, it's my pleasure to present the panel today who will be discussing environmental advocacy in the context of 2020. Um, so starting off our first panelist is Joe Hobbs. Uh, Joe is a 17 year old youth climate activist who is part of Fridays for Future DC, Fridays for Future USA and Fridays for Future International. He has worked extensively at the national level of Fridays for Future on a variety of tasks ranging from social media to partnerships to planning nationwide strikes. Joe has helped plan multiple deep strikes bringing millions of people together worldwide to fight for climate justice. Joe uh, also strongly believes in personal action, believing everything we do starts at a personal level. He wants to show everyone that no matter how young or old you are, you can help the environment. Um, the next panelist is Ben Longstreth. Ben is a senior attorney with the Natural Resources Defense Council. He serves as the Deputy Director of the Federal Policy Group and Climate and Clean Energy Program. Um, and as a part of NRDC's climate team, Ben advocates and litigates for the greenhouse gas pollution standards that are urgently needed to curb the impact of global climate change. Before joining the NRDC, he was an attorney at the US, US Department of Justice. Uh, ben holds a bachelor's degree from Williams College and a JD from Columbia University, uh, and he's based out of Washington, DC. Um, and finally, we have Janice Watts. Janice is a senior policy associate with French Energy and as a policy associate with the Energy Access and Equity Program, Janice plays a key role that is working to advance equitable outcomes across Minnesota's energy system. Her current projects include the St. Paul Property Dweller Property Owner Energy Project, which is a unique joint partnership with Community Stabilization Project uh, and collaborative work with environmental justice groups to improve air quality and reduce demand for oil through electrification of transportation. Uh, Janice joined the Fresh Energy team in August 2018, and before that, uh, Janice worked as a community engagement manager for Eureka Recycling, where she developed strategies on zero waste and environmental justice. She's an established organizer working for racial and environmental justice through outreach events, community meetings, and political action in the Twin Cities for over 10 years. She has a BA in political science and environmental science, policy and management from the University of Minnesota, and she is a board member of the Headwaters Foundation for Justice and MN350. 
Uh, and last but not least, moderating today's conversation is Dr. Carolyn Kassain. Uh, Dr. Kassain received her PhD from Columbia University. She serves as the Academic Director of Global Affairs Graduate Program at the Center for Global Affairs and is a clinical, clinical associate professor where she teaches graduate level courses examining the geopolitics of energy, comparative energy politics, energy environment, and resource security, which is a regional course focusing on Central Asia. Uh, she's also the coordinator of the energy and environment concentration at the center and is faculty advisor to the Energy Policy International Club. She was awarded the esteemed NYU Excellence in Teaching Award in 2007, the SCPS Award for Teaching Excellence in 2009, and was nominated for the NYU Distinguished Teaching Award in 2008, 2009, and 2016. She was also named Breaking Energy's Top 10 New York Women in Energy and Top 10 Energy Communicator. She has Fueling Our Future, which is an energy series she moderates, which brings in energy environment experts for conversation and debate. She serves on the board of New York Energy Forum, New York Energy Week, and the Clean Start Advisory Board. Now, after all those very long uh, and thorough resumes, uh, I'll pass it off to Dr. Kassane. Thank you so very much, Matt. And um, I am so delighted to be here and I am thrilled to be here with such a great group of panelists. So I wanna thank them for joining me in what I know will be a really dynamic conversation. And also I just want to extend my, my gratitude to the Alliance for Climate Change and Environment for putting this event together. You know, we are, um, you know, it's Thursday, it's uh, climate week. But as we all know, um, every day is a day that we need to be addressing climate action. And the three people that I'm in conversation with tonight are all in a myriad of different ways, really doing um, tremendous work on the ground through looking at uh, legal issues, through you know, really finding the pathways uh, to um, addressing uh, climate action. So thank you so much. And uh, we're going to jump in because these uh, there's so many issues to um, to discuss. So I'm going to start with getting a sense of your backgrounds and how each of you kind of came into your roles as activists, and you know, kind of giving us all a sense of your path pathway um, of activism. So we're going to start with you, Ben. Um, if you can talk to us about you know, how you kind of got to where you are today and, and what activism means in, in, in your work. Thanks so much, Dr. Kassane, and really great to be here with all of you and, and um, have, a, have a chance to have this dialogue. Um, uh, and um, look forward to questions and, 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 and the conversation. So, so my path to activism, um, I think, um, I had had grandparents who were quite activist and and that influenced me thinking that that was a, a an important path um and I certainly always had an, a a pretty keen interest in um in the environment um I think um climate was always a big piece of it but certainly um when I was in college I graduated in 93 which probably makes many of you think I'm ancient, which is probably starting to be true. Um, we, um, you know, climate was large, but didn't loom as, as significant as it does now. Um, I, I started out working on a, uh, uh, a river bay conservation group, actually in the New York City area, 
um, called Baykeeper. So we really got um, in on some some activism with a with a smaller NGO and just loved the kind of entrepreneurial way one could go about strategizing to to work on problems, um, figuring out ways of, of solving them, um, creating good uh, organizing alliances with, with others. Um, and, and it was an interesting mix of some more technical science elements, which I was interested in, and then, and then the more policy and, and communications. So then I did go to law school, um, which in part seemed to me that lots of the problems I was dealing with ended up going through the legal system. And so that, that um, seemed like a, an important skill. Um, I, I should say that I, if looking at it from here, I really do um, feel like there's so many different sets of, of skills and, 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 um, and capacities we need. So anyway, that was the one I took um, and I really in, enjoyed it um, and initially went down a, a, a litigation route, um, uh, which you know, I think is a very different form of, of work from more policy and grassroots activism it, it it often really is uh, a tool you're using in service of your client's goal, um, but in some respects, uh, the the person who's litigating is um, is not necessarily the one um, driving the policy outcome that you want. Um, and I, I from from there graduated or you know gradually ended up wanting to do more direct work on climate and and use the whole range of tools. So that's where I am now, um, and uh, and it still includes some some parts of litigation, some parts um, uh, trying to work on, on legislation in Congress, um, some parts working with um, administrative agencies on on potential rules. Um, but I would say that that our ability to do all of this really does depend on on um, increasing broad support in the in the in the public for action so um where, where i'm sitting is, is is not the only thing we need by any means we we also need um the work that Stroger's doing and the work that janice is doing so look forward to hearing more about that excellent thank you but thank you also for everything that you've been doing and we're going to get to a little bit later in the conversation because i know the last four years have been uh, let's just say a challenge. Uh, so in terms of, you know, the litigation part and the, the really pushing for the policies that we need um, around climate change. So I know the work that the NRDC is, is, is right up there and, you know, challenging uh, some of the, the obstacles that the federal government um, has been putting forward. I also love the fact that you identified your grandparents. I think that's fantastic. I think oftentimes when I speak to people about their activism, they will talk about a, a parent or grandparents or, you know, someone that, you know, helped inspire them and to sort of see how change how they were working around change all the time in their lives so that's fantastic uh janice would love to learn more about your path to activism and and how it how it sort of translates into what you're doing now yeah thank you um thanks for having me um yeah so i kind of came into activism certainly from a young age um my uh doing the work that I do now at Fresh Energy as the 
is a policy associate, senior policy associate, um, has kind of been in a, a long track from really starting out and organizing. Um, and so I think I can think back to, you know, around 2007, uh, it was when I entered college in 2008, um, I really got activated in the presidential election at the time. Um, and really wanted to, you know, started to understand what is kind of my role and what are my politics. Um, and, but since from a young age, I've always known I've wanted to do something like work in something in the environment. Um, but going through school, it was, it was very challenging for me because I saw the environment as like a little bit more on the conservation side, a little more on the, like heavier on the sciences, um, which was just never really my strong suit. Um, but social justice and social movements have really always been in my heart um, and history. So yeah, I've really always been fascinated by the history of social movements and how they've both shaped and been a response to environmental policy um, that in, in that I've, in my view, has been at best narrow and misguided <laughs> and at worst very like racist and traumatic for many communities around the country and around the world. Um, and so really being able to understand the kind of landscape and where and how environmental justice situates social justice and is very rooted in racial and gender justice um, is really what led me into environmental activism. Um, but I will start out with saying too that uh, I always like to, to share my story about how growing up in Minnesota, um, as a black girl in Minnesota, I growing up in St. Paul, um, you know, we, this is a very beautiful place with, you know, it's the land of 10,000 lakes. It's very, uh, there's a lot of emphasis on like our natural environment here, which is really, uh, you know, a privilege to, to have access to, but I didn't really grow up like that. Uh, my parents are both from the South of the United States. So my dad is from Mississippi and my mom is from Texas. And growing up here, it was not very common uh, to uh, sneak up to the cabin. Uh, like I've actually been able to do later in life, but that was not my upbringing as a child. Uh, so going down to Mississippi was how I spent a lot of my summers. Uh, so going home to, to see where my dad grew up, which is very rural Mississippi, and of course, um, a place that is a, that is a site of the civil rights movement in so many ways, um, knowing that that's part of my family and part of my heritage, that like resistance and, and activism uh, has always been a part of my family and heritage. It's always really stuck with me. And so I've always, that's been something that's really guided me in, in my work to, from, uh, from organizing to more of like nonprofit areas that I've worked in. It's always been a real question for me of how is it that for black folks, for BIPOC communities, the environment has really kind of been weaponized mm -hmm. against us and, and has been a point of real terror and real fear. Um, when I was younger, being able, like, I always wanted to run around the woods whenever we go down to Mississippi and explore and uh, because that's something that I know of uh, like my friends and that I got to do up here in Minnesota, but it was not something that I was really allowed to do in Mississippi. And knowing that from a young age really struck me. And, and try, so I've always been, I've been on this quest of trying to understand why. Why is it that these, these natural spaces have not been um, generally not been a safe space for us. Uh, and, and, and what is that, where is that history and that legacy? Well, it comes from slavery, of course, right? And, and from subjugation and racism in this country. So that's, so that's always been, again, like kind of my guiding light, my motivation to understand how that, how does the environment become some, something that is so distant 
uh, can be a place like something that's feared, something that is um, not safe for BIPOC communities. Um, and uh, so that's why environmental justice, again, is rooted in racial and gender justice. And that's kind of, uh, that's how I've always seen it and understood it and, and where I've brought that question into every place that I work that I work in, including the place I currently work. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I really, really tried to understand how social movements and organizing and resistance pushes uh, certainly environmental policy um, and the, and the uh, litigation of like, like Ben, you're saying of how these these things are tools to move our uh, really our society forward and making sure that our environment and climate are safe, uh, but. I've been trying to understand how, how do we support that work and how do we uh, really put organizing forward so that, because it is the thing that actually moves us to progress um, alongside the tools that we need to, to for within civil society, right? But, but it is really in protest and in organizing and resistance that really, forces us to confront those those real challenges and as I think we are seeing uh, seeing right now in a myriad of ways so yeah no oh, that's fantastic thank you so much for for sharing all of that because it is you know from the time how you saw you know nature being weaponized and how you saw limitations on on space and access and how your work right now is addressing that and you know really working with communities and 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 really bringing forward that intersectionality that has so often in the past been missing from the conversation and from thinking about policy and practice. So it's really fantastic. Thank you. Um, Joe, let's go to Joe. Let's hear about how you're, and you're, you know, you're on the younger side. So Ben, I know you, you, you called yourself almost ancient. Well, I'm more ancient than you, but I, I still don't feel like I'm there yet in terms of, but Joe, you're definitely on the, you know, you are a very young activist, which is really inspiring. So can you tell us how you have come to the place where you are, where, you know, you, are very deep into Greta Thunberg's movement and, you know, are, are sort of working to galvanize um, youth. Yeah, for sure. Um, I definitely don't have a path of activism even close to my colleagues. I mean, it's insane what you guys have done. Um, I'm still finishing up my first year of like serious activism and I still feel like I've taken maybe five steps down that path and I've got a whole other five miles to go right now. I feel like there's so many years ahead of me. I still absolutely loved it. Um, this is actually a little bit over my one year anniversary of starting with Friday's Future. The very first Friday's Future strike I went to was last year's big climate strike. And that was absolutely amazing. Um, and it's what really got me started is I'd been to some, um, not climate strikes, but strikes in general and been a little bit into activism, but it had never been really on my mindset, you know, like I'd gone through one or two things and I was like, this is important, but I'm not going to follow up. I'm not going to do a lot of behind the scenes. I'll show up, make a sign, that kind of thing. Um, but after going to my very first strike, I, I immediately, like when I was leaving on the subway going home, I was texting their Instagram going, hey, can I join you guys? How can I get involved? And like from the moment I joined, I was just in it. I was putting like 40, 50 hours a week organizing and like working on social media and just all that behind the scenes stuff. And I think like it really just started my trip of realizing how important activism is. And for me, especially where 
I feel like there's a gap in my life where, you know, I was like doing the day-to-day activities, wake up, go to school, do your homework, go to sleep. And it was like a sudden break from that where you realize there's a whole different side to what you do. And especially at Fried's Future where it's not at all like you have this title and you have to be this old to do this. It's very much of, you can be 10 years old, you can be 50 years old. It does not matter. You are doing something. And I feel like that really just fit me because you could put in five hours a week, you could put in 50 hours a week and you get the same out of it. You still get that same feeling. And it's just such an amazing community of people all focused on one important issue. And just joining that community completely changed my mindset. And from there, I went from organizing at the DC level with, you know, their strikes there to like joining the national group and starting to organize those big strikes that we all hear about. And then kind of getting into international and then from there kind of branching out. Um, I started up another climate organization with my friend and we work on translating information and sending it to countries where information isn't accessible. Um, it's definitely an issue. The climate movement is very focused on, you know, English and English is the main language that it always seems to be in. And one of the big issues is a lot of people don't have access to the same information we do. We can easily search up online climate information, find a whole bunch of articles and papers, but it's not that easy in other languages. And one of the focuses of that is making it accessible to everyone. And I think like right now I'm on that path of continuing with the climate activist side of it, but also focusing on like the accessible side of it. And does everyone have the same access that we do? And I think that's really such an important thing to focus on is not everyone is at the same stepping stone and we need to recognize that and work with them so everyone's on the same level here. And I think like Fridays for Future and just the climate movement in general is so supportive of each other. You have all these different organizations working on the same thing, but they all support each other. They're all there for each other. And I just, I don't know, my path to activism, still starting off, but I'm absolutely loving it so far and it's been amazing. Well, I have no doubt that you have many, many, many more years ahead of you of tremendous activism. And since we're on the set, since you mentioned Greta Thunberg, tomorrow um, there will be, I think, over in over 3,000 locations, there will be climate protests around the world. This is about, this is the one year anniversary. Um, what do you think, and this is a question for all three of you, you know, what do you think it was about Greta Thunberg's movement that that really sort of captured the world and you know there have been many climate protests in the past right some of them were small but this one just 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 had something different and i'm just wondering what your thoughts are on what 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 was that what was that what was that change that really you know, again, she was she spoke at the World Economic Forum one year ago. She spoke before the General Assembly. She opened Climate Week at the United Nations. I mean, quite phenomenal for you know a, a movement that started in 2018. So I'm just curious, as three activists, you know, what do you see as maybe what 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 was that? Was there something? And Janice, I'm looking at you because you know you've studied social movements, right? I, like, was there something? I'm just curious to sort of get your. Um, and then Joe, in terms of what was it after that first, you know, first protest? You said this is I'm going to devote 50 hours a week to this cause. So anyone who wants to sort of jump in and share their ideas. Joe, I start. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, but uh, I like this question. Um, something that what really is striking to me into thinking about social movements is that like the climate strikes were strikes. 
right? Like Greta Thunberg and students all around the world were withholding their labor <laughs> from their educational institutions. That's what, like, that's how I looked at it. Um, you know, like a, a labor strike is about withholding your labor, how it's going to cost uh, financially, uh, you know, goods of production, it's going to cost capital, right? And so for students all around the world to say, I think a lot of students might say, well, going to school is my job. <laughs> I'm going to withhold my labor. That's, so that's what I really loved, really loved about it. And, and certainly what uh, caught my attention and really, um, really uh, struck me. And like, I, I think, think is so inspiring. Um, labor strikes work. <laughs> and uh, utilizing that kind of uh, ideal of withholding something from the status quo, withholding uh, your, uh, the thing that for, at least for educational institutions, I mean, what are they without students? What are they without that person on the other end at the table, probably maybe at the other end of the screen nowadays <laughs> of, uh, well, at least a lot of students are being told that you are required to attend this institution. Like you were required to be here in school eight hours a day. Um, and I think really the really awesome thing about the way it just like galvanized young people and activated people was that like there's a lot of places a lot of institutions that aren't teaching climate education <laughs> that aren't talking about the consequences of climate change and climate chaos um and and we know certainly in this country that there's a lot of things that our institutions don't teach our young people um and and but i but young people get that. They know what they're being denied and certainly being denied in political representation when it comes to this issue that our governments are not serving any of us when it comes to climate. And so, um, yeah, I think that that was just like, uh, it was obviously a brilliant idea just to say, to say, and even like, it might even seem, I'm sure it wasn't a simple decision, but it might've been simple to, I'm going to write a sign and I'm just not going to go to school. <laughs> and that's where it's, that's where it began. I mean, obviously Joe, you could speak to that a lot more, but the fact that it was like a strike, a labor strike withholding, uh, students all around the world withheld that end of the bargain and said, I'm not going to go to school because you're not doing anything about this issue that's impacting my life. Um, and I, yeah, amazing. Right. Yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with you on that. I think one of the biggest reasons that it's grown so big so fast, especially at the start, was it was youth-led. It wasn't like an adult-led movement. It wasn't structured. There's no organization behind it. There's no money behind it. There's absolutely no money funneling into it. We're not out here going, we'd love for you to come out, but alternatively you can donate. It's you're coming out or you're not doing anything. Like, And it's not even like we're looking for this policy or we're looking for you to do exactly this. It's you're not doing enough do more like there's no there's not even like any we're gonna like work with you on this it's very definite and that's what red is amazing at is giving a definitive thing you need to do this and if you're not doing anything closest if you're not even doing it then you're not doing enough and i think that's what really caught the attention especially you know she mobilized high school age like it uh or your international um second year whatever you call it um, she mobilized those kids who had never really been mobilized before um, a lot. And like, you know, there's been a lot about college activism and that's always been prevalent, but this is high school activism. This is like a youth led activism under age of 18 getting involved. And I think that's where like a lot of kids were like, I've never been involved. I've never been invited to something. And now all of a sudden it's just those kids. It's just those kids and adults are there to watch along. And I think that's why it grew so fast 
was all these kids were like, I'm, I feel good about this. Like, this is something that's important and matters to me. So I'm going to go out and do that. And I really think that's why it was so important. It just gathered so much attention. That's great. Um, ben, any? Well, I, I might just add from sort of the, the um, all right, I'm not really ancient, um, <laughs> but, but from the older perspective, I think the, the, the climate crisis really is a multi-generational tragedy that's playing out. And um, so having young people uh, speaking with such clarity as, as, as Joe and Jenny said um, to, the, to the crisis and the effect that it'll have on them. And I really like, uh, Jenny's what you're saying about the, about the strike and withholding labor. And, and it's the, the reason people, kids go to school is, is for their future, right? You're, you're, you're going to school to learn things that you can do later. And so it was really saying, hey, if you don't fix this problem, my future is um, uh, problematic, is screwed up. She, she used very blunt language. Um, I mean, I certainly think that's the other piece she really, the, the, the clarity and, and sort of bluntness of her, her language and, and, you know, I think it probably is um, particularly coming out of somebody um, with her other characteristics was, was so powerful, um, sort of a young person speaking um, some, some truths in a um, totally frank manner, so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And I think the way that she spoke to that, 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 you know, climate change was, was taking the future away from her generation, you know, and she spoke as, as Ben, you said, so, so clearly, right. And with so much conviction and passion, right. That we, we, I think there was this, you felt her pain, you felt how, how much this meant to her, right? And that, that this, 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 was, this was her, you know, this is what she had to devote, you know, her, her whole being to. Um, I was in uh, Sweden and Norway. I was in the Scandinavian countries last year, and it was really quite amazing just to see going into museums, there would be murals, and there would be the photos of the student protest, like the, the student strikes, and the various sort of climate movements from around the world. And it was just very much, you know, part of how they, um, just the the visual narrative um, that, that could be seen, uh, which I thought was, 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 was great. I have a quick question for Joe before we um, go move on to the next question. So in your high school, have, has it been relatively easy to get students involved? Has it, you know, how have you sort of been, engaging young people in your sort of more immediate area? Yeah, um, I'm actually quite blessed to work with a school system that's quite understanding of, you know, students speaking up for what they feel is right, um, which I absolutely appreciate. So it has been, the school system has supported me a lot of the way of like, hey, if you need to like take off an hour from class or, you know, take off the afternoon, we support that, like we understand. And it's, it's been great because, I mean, they're pretty understanding. And I know my local school has, actually they helped us create a strike that we had, I think last year. And it, it was just one day, but it was like, you know, we could go out for a whole hour and that was the entire school going out. And I think it's just great to see that even like school officials and, you know, the school board is realizing that's important and they're supporting those kind of actions. So it's definitely been a bit easier on the local level as well with support from, you know, local districts and all. That's great. That's great to hear because I think, 
I think we would assume, right? And Janice, you mentioned it, right? You know, in terms of children have to go to school, right? But to see sort of schools and school systems sort of providing that space and say, listen, activism is also really important and we're going to support you and we're going to, you know, you're not going to be penalized, right? But this is something that we want you to do. And I do think it's, I, I have had this conversation with people in terms of the absence of, of, a, of a rigorous, climate change curriculum at the high school level is it's, it's very unfortunate. I'm, gl I'm glad to hear that, you know, Joe, at your school, you see that and you're making that happen, but across so many different schools, there's just nothing. Students don't have an opportunity to really learn and have, have discussions about climate change. Yeah, so it's, it's been a really lack on like, you know, climate policy, because I mean, we have maybe two classes that say climate change is bad. Here's like a tiny bit of the science, but it definitely even now needs to be worked on. It needs to be improved. And in some cases it needs to be created because yeah. some school systems don't even believe in it. And I just, I still can't understand how that's not part of the curriculum. And we can teach about like founding fathers and all that. But we don't even teach about environmentalism. We don't teach about really any of the important things. We just gloss over those. So I still think that that really needs to be worked on. Right. Speaking on things that need to be worked on, so Ben, I'm gonna move over to you. Um, it has been a, uh, as I said, a tough four years. Uh, and, you know, under the Trump administration, the rollback of, you know, many of the, 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 the more sort of assertive climate policies that were initiated under the Obama, Obama administration, the repeal of the, the clean, uh, the clean power plan, the the cafe standards. I mean, so many things, right? A a real sort of um, weakening of the EPA and uh, regular regulations in you know around water and you name it, right? So many different things. Um, so, can you kind of discuss like maybe the most significant rollbacks that that you? that you have sort of taken on and that you sort of see as the, you know, that need further, uh, further action moving forward? No, I, I'd love to. Um, and, and there, the full list is really just very numerous. Um, pretty much everything that the Obama administration did on climate um, in a regulatory manner, meaning not, not congressional legislation, um, th this administration has tried to roll back. And, and it's even things that the regulated entities don't actually have a problem with, um, and some of which they're, they're, um, they, they're already complying with and would, would rather have stay in, in place. Um, but I, I think it's useful to just reflect, and Dr. Sand sounds like you're, you're uh, particularly expert in this, but the the withdrawal from the Paris Agreement that sort of was a a, a very early step, um, and that and that withdrawal is is soon going to be uh, finalized. Um, and um, as you mentioned, the Clean Power Plan is uh, these were the standards first first time we had national standards uh, setting pollution limits on power plants. This is actually an, an interesting case in some respects because um, fortunately the the progress that we have made um, in terms of power plant emissions has um, has continued despite the the Trump administration's efforts 
to, to go better than we would have thought. Um, so what we really needed to be doing is strengthening the Clean Power Plan. Um, instead of doing that, the, the, the Trump administration has rolled it back with a rule that, um, that both would require very little to nothing of, um, of power plants in the way of action, and is also really attempting to set in place limits that disable the agency from taking significant action in the future. Um, this, is, this is being litigated at the moment. Um, NRDC and, and other groups and, and a, a big coalition of states are all in, involved in it. Um, um, if there's a change in administration, as with, with a couple of the rules that I'll, I'll mention, um, we'll see if the, if, the, if the next administration changes course or if, we, if we, yeah, the, the courts decide the, the cases. Um, uh, the, the vehicle standards, again, Dr. Kisson mentioned, because they're, they're, they're really um, huge, they were one of, the, one of the most significant actions of the first uh, Obama administration, and and we we've made a lot of progress under them already. So it's not uh, it's not like those um, years have have been lost. But they went out to 2025, and this administration has uh, flatlined comparatively the the level of improvement um, from from the present out to 2025, and actually even even one year further. Um, and and those are 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 um, have, have very significant um, carbon pollution um, differences in terms of the, the, the size of the rollback. It's, it's just very dramatic. And they've also tried to take away California's authority, which, um, which has existed because California was already working on this when, when the Clean Air Act started to uh, allow the EPA to, to set standards for, um, for vehicles. Uh, this administration has tried to, to, to rein that in, which affects not just California, but also a lot of other states that already have or are contemplating uh, adopting California's standards, which actually includes Minnesota, um, as, as I'm sure you know, Janice. Um, methane standards, another very big one. We, we our, our, our um, oil and gas sector leaks a, a, a Tons, literally tons um, of, of methane, which is a, a um, potent greenhouse gas. Um, and Obama had standards in place. And, and here again, it's, it's uh, the administration is not simply undoing the rule, but is attempting to limit future rules in this case by trying to say, well, I'm gonna break the sector up into pieces and each piece is too small to set standards for. Um, again, this will be will be um, be litigated. I think just on the on the big picture, um, it, it's it's been a really just full four year onslaught. I think they have moved slower than than one might expect. That a lot of these rules are only being finalized um, in in 2020 rather than earlier. Um, but it, it means the next administration will have a really big job to put um, a lot of these back in place, um, go, go farther um, as, as appropriate. Um, uh, so it, it, it leaves a, a, a tremendous amount to, to recover from.
Thank you. Just maybe a quick follow-up. Do you see the, do you see like states kind of responding to or sort of acting against some of the directions of the Trump administration so that they are doubling down on, you know, what they can do at the state level to address carbon emissions, to address energy efficiency, to, you know, wherever they can that that would where they have that space to kind of act on their own and kind of, you know, the, the, the current administration will do what it wants, but the, the states have sort of taken a more sort of significant role. Some states, not all states. Um, you know, you mentioned California, New York, right? New York has yeah. um, very significant uh, uh, carbon reduction emission targets. Is that something that you, that you think that maybe that has been a really strong response to the horrors that you just described in terms of, you know, that have happened over the last four years. Oh, that's absolutely right. Um, and and um, states and also cities uh, around, the, around the U.S. And I think there really was a sense um, uh, that there was a vacuum of, of leadership or even, you know, there, there was a negative leadership at the federal level. And, and so that, that absolutely spurred additional action and i think in the in the ideal world we really keep um the state actors pushing as hard as they can and we and we keep the federal government um uh doing as much as it can even in in a in a good administration so i'm i'm hopeful that that uh, uh kind of the, the momentum that is being carried continues forward um i don't i mean you'd be interested uh, Jenny's um, how how you feel Minnesota is doing, but um, uh, well, that's a great that's a great lead in. So, um, Janice, do you want to sort of talk to us about what you in terms of your work and how you have seen some of these rollbacks play out, or responses from your organization, or what you're seeing in Minnesota? Sure. Yes, you can see my like very uh, intense nodding because it, it, <laughs> uh, I couldn't agree more that thankfully there are some states and cities who have taken the leadership upon themselves, I mean, as they should in their respective ways, but certainly within the absence of the federal government, um, not only leadership, but just like sheer, the sheer denial and dismissal of, of climate chaos and environmental injustice that's happening um, at the federal level. Um, so yeah, uh, Fresh Energy Mayorization actually has been involved in um, what is known here in Minnesota as our clean cars standard here in Minnesota, trying to push our, um, our working with our pollution control agency uh, to uh, make a, for a regulatory forum uh, for a clean car, a zero emission and, and low emission vehicle standard here in Minnesota to follow California's uh, standard. And uh, yeah, so that's actually in the middle of, we're in the middle of a kind of like comment period and kind of a rulemaking period right now. Um, some of my co colleagues who are leading on that, uh, who could speak to it brilliantly a little bit more than I could. But uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really big push right now at our at the state level. So working with our governor, uh, Tim Walls, uh, their office and our pollution control agency for a clean cars rulemaking standard. But of course, we have had pushback uh, within our state legislature. Um, that is, uh, our uh, Democrats have control of the House of the House and then Republicans have control of the Senate, but we have a Democratic governor. And so there's constant, as you can imagine, um, tension there and uh, fighting to um, to have just, and, and really like the rule is amazing, right? Because it's like, it's literally just to like get more options, <laughs> more of more 
uh, electric vehicles and low emission vehicles in the state of Minnesota, um, really so that consumers can have more of a choice of uh, when they go to purchase a new or used vehicle. Uh, so that's the way that we're trying to um, certainly message it. And certainly it's also about health and uh, uh, public health around air pollution um, and certainly in, in our cities and in but all of our communities that are overburdened with pollution. Um, but it's, it's really just like, I would just like more options to have a <laughs> electric vehicles in the state. And so that would be a really nice thing. Um, and then the other thing I'll mention too, that my organization has worked on with, uh, in a coalition with other organizations in Minnesota is getting our attorney general, Keith Ellison, to, uh, to sue fossil fuel companies uh, because of their knowing, knowingly, uh, knowingly uh, leading on their um, extraction, right? Like pursuing extractive uh, um, fossil fuels and pursuing in that industry, knowing that it's contributing to climate change. And the fact that they knew the damage that uh, emissions, carbon emissions are going to do to our planet, um, our attorney general has brought forth a lawsuit um, to certain uh, fossil fuel companies here in our state. So that's, that was a, we, that was just announced maybe a month ago or so. And it's a big deal. And something that's part of, part of the litigation uh, tools that are very much needed to, to say to these companies, we know that you knew <laughs> and we're not going to just let you get away with that anymore. Yeah, no, thank you for, thank you for that. Yeah, no, the courts are, you know, very important sites for sort of addressing climate, you know, climate in terms of doing climate action as well, which is, as we said, becoming ever more um, uh, required in our current environment. So sort of talking about 2020 and sort of thinking about activism in 2020, it's been, I think the, the word, the most commonly used word probably of 2020 is unprecedented, right? This has been an unprecedented year. You know, we, we're in the midst of a, of a global pandemic that, you know, there's been, you know, no, 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 every country, um, you know, has been, has been hit by it. But it's also been a, a year, especially in the United States, with um, you know a real sort of demand for social justice and a demand for racial justice, um, demand for police reform. Um, so, how do you, how do the three of you sort of see activism in 2020, and how has it been maybe changed as a result of these this confluence of unprecedented i'm sorry looking for like a, a better word but it's really hard to find one you know um how does how do you think of activism in 2020 and i guess i'll go to janice to sort of go back to in your introduction in terms of talking about the intersectionality you know thinking about the racism in the environment racism and gender you know, how this has really, in many ways, it's, it's, it's coming to the forefront today more so than even a year ago. So if each of you could just sort of share your thoughts on, you know, maybe how this very unique period in history is influencing and impacting activism. Yeah, um, the, yeah. Thank you. Um, it is, uh, yeah, hard to find a word besides unprecedented. I, I don't disagree with you there, <laughs> Dr. Hussain. Um, but yeah, the uprisings and COVID-19 have like just really, truly ripped open the 
wounds <laughs> that have been really festering uh, within this country um, forever. <laughs> and really something that like, I mean, many communities have known this, but the way that um, I think was kind of, it's still kind of shocking about it is the fact that we're still here, right? Like there's, there's, we are still fighting what feels like the same battles from centuries ago. Like that, but of course, this is in a continuum of activism and resistance that has been going on for centuries. So, you know, while, it's, I mean, it's really important to say that there, a lot of progress has been made, certainly, but like the fact that we are, it, it just proves that the system is, is about how corrupt and fundamentally unjust the system that we live in and and that and that's across the board from everything that we are in contact with from our environment to the criminal justice system that you mentioned right um it is really all fundam fundamentally corrupt but it's also fundamentally interconnected um, because you don't get militarization of police and within our communities within our cities and our towns without there being uh, the, 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 I don't even wanna call it need, but like their directive is to generally to protect property. And a lot of the times it's, it's property, things like pipeline, like uh, fossil fuel infrastructure, things like pipelines um, that get that call out these heavily militarized forces. Um, and, and so like I, it is, I, I can't look at what we're experiencing now without putting it in the context of our environment, without putting it in the context of the fact that like, that this is part of the like, pollution of our, of our communities is, is the like militarization, is state violence, is um, what, what we've been experiencing um, this year. And then on top of that, a pandemic, right? And a pandemic of, again, like, I mean, I think we've, all heard this, right? That uh, the person who calls himself the president right now um, knew how dangerous this pandemic is. He knew it and he decided to downplay it for his own political gains and at the expense of over 200,000 Americans right now. And it's just like absolutely beyond devastating and mind-boggling and infuriating. <laughs> um, I feel my blood pressure rising right now. Um, that is just uh, absolutely horrible of the ways that um, we have been living these last four years, uh, but it almost feels kind of like a concentrated version of the last 400 years. <laughs> Absolutely. And you also look at the 200,000 people that have died in the United States. It's also been, you know, disproportionate in terms of certain uh, different communities, right? Um, and it's been, you know, I think that's also in terms of his withholding a form of very significant racism. Um, Mm. So it's uh, yeah, I can understand how you're yet feel start to feel infuriated when you talk about that, right? Um, yeah, Joe, maybe moving to you because I know I'm teaching at NYU, but I have I'm kind of what we call blended. I have some st I have students in person. I have students online. My own children are all 100% remote. So what does activism look like virtually? today in 2020 it's I, I don't know maybe you're you know maybe you're you know I think in some parts of the world there's still you know you can do still do street protests but you know in many parts of the United States that's that's hard that's hard to do um in a in in the pandemic yeah I mean speaking at the international level to start off with it's been a big change um 
obviously every single country is at a different point. Um, and every single country started off at a different point. You look at, you know, UK, they took a long time to even start to think about implementing. I mean, their first thought was, we'll just let everyone do what they want. And, you know, everyone will be immune anyway. And obviously that didn't work out too well for them. Um, and they suddenly changed it and they locked down. America, on the other hand, very big difference. Um, it was a lot more local and it was a bit messier. And it's definitely been tricky, you know, coordinate those international events where, you know, last year, every single country was doing in-person strike. This year, it's very much mixed, um, very much mixed. You get a lot of countries who feel comfortable going out and striking. You get a lot of countries who go, we're not comfortable with that. We're going to do an online event. We may have like a Zoom meeting where people can, you know, come and ask some questions while we're kind of Zoom talk. Other times, it's very much of a community thing. Um, it's an open Zoom, but it's really just like talking to each other. And it's it's kind of, it's mostly activists just coming together and talking. It's very relaxed. And then other times you get, you know, online conversations with a bunch of um, scientists and such on through Instagram and other social media. But it's definitely been a big transition going from, you know, really emphasizing those in-person events as Fridays for Future to all of a sudden going online and completely online. And it's been interesting. And on the U.S. level especially, it's been so tricky to coordinate when you've got different states fighting with cities and then the cities fighting with the states and the national government. And like Florida can be at a completely different level from Maryland and Maryland can be a completely different level from California. It's been so tricky to coordinate. Like, do we even want to do any activities? And then also like just the events that have happened recently and over the summer has been so amazing. And it's been amazing to see America mobilize on something. And I feel like this needed to happen. It's been like, it's been talked about in the environmental aspect. That's mostly what I'm familiar with ever since I joined, but really like recent events brought it out and the environmental movement has kind of gradually shifted towards focusing more on environmental racism and focusing on environmental justice more than just environmental change and, you know, focusing on that. And I think it's been absolutely amazing and I'm loving the transition. It's really important that we make this transition but it's just been really interesting seeing a lot of different people mobilize all at once. And a lot of people saying COVID's a thing, but I need to get out there and strike, which is very similar to Greta's message of school's a thing, but I need to skip school and go out. I'm very different situations, but very similar in the message of this is important, but this is more important. And I think it's really important that America start to realize activism is a tool that they can use to show how they feel. And I think that we're getting to the point where Americans feel comfortable going out and striking. That's great. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I completely agree with you. Uh, ben, anything you'd like to add? Because I'm going to be also talking to you about the, the Green New Deal in a, in a, in a minute. Mm -hmm. uh, um, I guess the only thing I, I, I just note, it I, seems like there's been a clarity. We talked earlier about, about Greta sort of having a clarity of, of um, the climate issue, climate crisis. Um, her ability to do that, and it seems to, to me the 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 fact that all Americans can see what happened to to George Floyd on a video, it just I think lets lets everyone understand the the experience um, that that others have. That really um, was I, I mean obviously mobilizing, but I think also. Um, deeply in, informative to to um to americans who otherwise didn't understand um and just anyway it seems like there's kind of a thread there um uh, between um 
what's happening and i think the, the wildfires uh, hurricanes kind of have a have a clarifying aspect of reminding us of what the what the um what the climate crisis has in store for us if we don't uh get our act together anyway just no absolutely i mean we just just think of it yeah and you think about the the, the fires right you had three states right that lost millions of acres um the hurricanes right the the just the it's this one thing after another, right? And as you said, the you know the the visual, right, of of seeing the the, the murder of George Floyd, um, that was, I, I I do I do think it's it's you know it, it has it has galvanized action, right? People feel that they can't just they can't they they can't just sit and not do anything. That this is you know that to do so they would be dehumanizing. It would. You know, it would just be that they'd become so desensitized to uh, to humanity's plight. Um, a quick sort of is interesting. Two years ago, I was asked about the 2020 election and what I thought might be a, a, an issue. And I said climate change. And some people disagreed. Some people said, no, don't you remember 2016 and 2016 kind of climate change got it was sort of never really a threat in any of the presidential debates. Um, and, you know, it, it just wasn't a big issue um, in, the, in the 2016 election. Fast forward, right? All of the Democratic debates had a very strong, thick thread in terms of um, addressing and talking about um, each candidate's climate platforms. And, you know, the Green New Deal now, um, I'm just curious as to how you see the Green New Deal in terms of moving forward. Of course, there's still the unknowns as to what's going to happen in November. Um, but as from a, you know, from where you sit in the NRDC, you know, what do you see in moving forward with regards to the, um, the possible gains from the, from the Green New Deal? I, I think the, the, there has been, without question, a, a different level of, of grassroots um, or organizing that, that kind of uh, reflected in the Green New Deal and reflected in, in um, a, a hugely different level of ambition from what we've had before. And a lot of that is, is very much following the, the science and, and the IPCC's more recent um, analysis of, of the difference between a two degree future and a one and a half degree uh, Celsius warming future, um, which is really great. We don't want the two degree future. Uh, we don't want the one and a half degree future, but um, for sure we don't want the, the, the two degree one. Um, uh, the, the, the change in ambition in DC um, that I think is reflected in the Green New Deal, but also reflected in, in um, um, a lot of additional bills that have been been introduced um, is is just striking, and certainly the uh, President Biden's um, uh, you know, climate uh, platform is is striking. I think the the um, so there will be much more interest in going much farther than we have have anticipated in the past. The 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 challenge is is getting um legislation passed in dc is not easy and we really will need a very um not just the intensity but also a, a breadth of support 
um, to, to, to get uh, legislation passed. And, and of course, a lot depends on, uh, as, as you indicate, on the election. Um, uh, and I think one of, the, one of the challenges that we'll all have to wrestle with is how to uh, reconcile the, um, the, the total rightful ambition and, and goals of, of incredibly swift action that we need that responds to the science and the need to have a broad enough tent. How do you have um, labor and um, 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 uh, climate uh, activists, uh, environmental justice groups? How do we, how do we create a, a platform that is is a we're able to unify a, across the, the whole span, which I think is really critical to to, to making progress. Um, and we'll have to also evaluate where we take what we can get through and, and move forward uh, and, and continue to demand more. And where we say this isn't good enough, it's not, not worth passing um, this bill at all. Um, so it'll, it'll be really exciting um, uh, and, and challenging, I think. Thank you very much. You know, a, a, um, a question came in actually uh, from, from an audience member specifically about that issue. Um, and the question is, can anyone talk about the importance of building coalitions among seemingly disparate causes? So, you know, Ben, you just sort of spoke to that need, but if anyone wants to also, you know, sort of uh, speak to that question, because as you said, right, you, you, need, you need those disparate groups to, to sort of come together, right? Because if there's going to be that, constant sort of tension and polarization, it's gonna be hard to get things done. So what is the best ways to sort of build, build the types of coalitions that we need? Anyone wants to, Denise, do you wanna jump in? How you see sort of coalition building or maybe in terms of how you sort of see it happen in your sort of in your own space in terms of the work that you do and yeah, um, yeah, certainly co coalitions. Um, I have a, I have a joke that I talk about Minnesota being the land of ten thousand coalitions, especially <laughs> in the environmental landscape, because we really do have a lot of coalitions and tables and this working group, um, and generally all for, all for the better. Uh, but uh, I mean, but, but still, it's a struggle to make, like understand and and like really make sure we're capturing all perspectives and, and making sure that like everybody not only has a seat at the table, right, but like has agency when they're at that table uh, part. So something that uh, really been trying to, to work on and really understand about our coalition landscape in Minnesota is uh, we, we can have, we, so it's like we can have a coalition, right? We can have a structure, but if we're not actually working in relationship with one another um, and really taking the time to, to deeply, to do that deep relationship building each other that organizing requires, uh, because organizing requires trust. Uh, and, and, to, and so to be able to like have any sort of um, understanding of what other folks are going through, like what are, the, what are all the issues that could be un encompassed and maybe potentially addressed with something like the Green New Deal that uh, should that should address things like labor and employment, um, economic development in communities, a just transition for communities that are coming out of fossil fuel industries. 
um, and, and when that surrounds their communities. Uh, but it's just as important about how we work together and uh, if we're taking that time to do that deep relationship building. And, and of course that can be, it's, it's tough because it can be a slow process because you want, you got to build in time to, to build those partnerships and, and to listen to people's stories and to then also, you know, it's not, not one conversation, it's a multitude and years of building friendships and communities with one another. And, 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 and so it has to go that deep as well of, you know, are our, are our communities connected? Do I understand how the immigration movement is connected to the, to the environmental justice movement? Um, is our anti-war movements connected to the environmental justice movement? And like, and so, because like, we can't just invite folks in to join our thing without there being not only an offering, but a real um, genuine um, extension of, I, I wanna understand your story as well. Uh, so, and of course, it, with climate, like it, time is not on our side, right? Like we are told over and over, and it's the truth, and we're facing it right now. We're facing the climate consequences right now. So it's a definitely um, a hard, but like a necessary balance of taking enough time to build deeply and slowly with one another and build that trust, while also understanding that we are, we, time is on our side, and we are up against the most urgent crisis of our lives right now. So yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but like. It, absolutely. It was, you know, as, as, you talking, as you were talking about, I, my, my question was, yeah, but we don't have enough time, right? Yeah. Like the urgency of building these coalitions, like how do we do it? And at the same time, you know, sort of do it quickly, right? Because we can't, and also, knowing in terms of u.s politics right if we if we have if we have an opening which i hope we'll have in november you know what are we going to do with that the time that we have right to to, to take the actions that we need to take and to really be you know on a positive path forward because you know as ben pointed out is there's been some you know good changes over the last four years that have come from cities and states and and organizations and, and individuals but there has also been some significant rollbacks right that are going to need to be addressed you know under a new administration um so yeah i'm i you know i wish i had a magic wand right they could sort of <laughs> that you know ben you were talking about that we could sort of make the make those things happen um in the in the short time that we we you know we, we have and and i think it is a it's an important point too of just like what kind of work are we doing in preparation for the hopeful time that we might have when the political climate <laughs> when the political landscape might be a little bit more <laughs> attuned to wanting to address this crisis. Um, and, and so that that's what's part of it is, is right now, certainly as we lead up to the election, that is part of the work of how are we prepared to, you know, in the best case scenario of the, the, the political landscape that we have, and then in the worst case scenario, how are we, how are we preparing for what could be very likely worst case scenario? <laughs> One of the open. Go ahead. I was just going to add. I think you know everything, Ginny, that, that you're describing at, uh, in Minnesota is 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 true in in DC also, as, as as I'm sure you'd expect. And I guess the other question, just sort of thinking through, sort of the last time there was a a moment um, uh, in in you know 2000. Um, 
nine to where where we were considering climate legislation and and the Affordable Care Act and and just uh, inevitably there will be political swings, right? That just at least that's always been the case. So how if we if we if we get the chance to legislate, can we do so in a way that will both both you know bring together the broad coalition and be durable uh into the future um the 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 republicans didn't really want to be responsible for getting rid of people's health insurance that was going to be difficult is there a way to have a climate policy that is similarly hard to un or uh, you know uh, politically painful to to unwind um how do we how do we do that? I'm not sure that I've answered that, but maybe someone in our audience has the answer. I want it. <laughs> well, I have, yeah. So we are getting some questions and everyone that's out there listening, please do um, submit your questions. We have, you know, as I said, we have Ben, Joe and Janice here. They're fabulous. So this is your chance. A really nice question came in and uh, um, First, and I'll read the whole thing. Big thanks to the panel doing such inspiring work. Um, I'm wondering, in order to reach the last smile as we need in the climate work, to reach those who are deeply embedded in sectors that feel threatened, how can we use the right messages and language to get them on board? Yeah, um, I'd actually love to speak on this first. Um, and this is actually one of the issues I found with the climate movement, is involving those groups of people who don't want to get involved. Um, and this happens quite often is you get many people who go, doesn't matter to me, or you get the people who honestly, their jobs are threatened, you know, by the climate movement. Um, a lot of the climates, you know, going towards clean energy, and that means losing a lot of jobs in the energy sector. And I think one of the important things that really needs to be emphasized is we're taking away jobs, but we're also adding jobs. And those jobs are longer term jobs, better paying jobs, and just overall better for the environment. And I think one of the really important things is we need to start including others into this conversation about environmentalism. And it's been such a struggle really getting them there because a lot of it, you know, especially you have, you're looking to the government for leadership. And I hate to say it, I look to them for leadership. That's just the natural thing. You look to your elected officials for leadership. And when you have elected officials who are telling you, this isn't true, that's not true, science is a lie, you need to believe this certain thing, but don't believe any scientist it's really a struggle trying to convince those same people that scientists are actually telling the truth. And I think that's one of the big things is, you know, competing with people who are telling you what you want to hear. And then people who are telling you the straight up facts that honestly suck to hear. You, you don't want to hear that the world's going to end. You don't want to hear that, like everything's going terrible, but sometimes you got to hear that. And it's been such a struggle trying to reach those people. But I think we really just need to emphasize reaching across that aisle and talking to those we're a little bit scared to have that conversation or honestly don't know where to start and being understanding that and not chopping off their heads when they start saying something that you may not believe is right, but instead talking about how that could be wrong and give them some science behind it. I think that's really what we need to focus on. Excellent. Janice, Ben, anything you'd like to add in terms of messaging and communicating the, the urgency, but also understanding that there are people who do feel threatened, right? They feel threatened by the idea of how their lives are going to be impacted, right? How their jobs, as, as Joe pointed out, you know, may, they may 
lose their jobs or their fear is that they may lose their jobs. So, you know, what, what are sort of effective communication uh, messages that could be used to sort of address some of the, that, that, that opposition? I guess I'll just offer, I think I really agree with Joe that messages that, um, that focus on the, the upside of this transformation, it is going to um, require a tremendous amount of, of work um, to, to transform our, our economy to, to clean energy. And that, is, that is, cannot be done without um, a lot of people um, you know, all, all across the, the sector doing the work. Um, but also as, as Joe, I think as, as, as you mentioned, the, the folks who are gonna lose their job, the, the, that, is a, that is direct and concrete and you have a person who has the job today and is, is threatened with the loss. And the, the prospect of a new job where we don't have that employed person yet is never gonna be as concrete. And I think part of that is just that we we need to make sure we are taking care of those folks and that we have a transition program that is real and that's probably not going to be be cheap and not going to be easy and um, uh, but including that as 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 part of our platform as as I think you know many of us are trying to do um, is really important. It also is not easy uh, if if somebody has been in the same line of work. If you know, I'm sure it's probably true for me as well. If, if someone tried to give, give me a very different job today, I might be resistant to it. I think that's, that's true for a lot of folks who um, ha have been doing one kind of work. Um, I guess the, the related point I just make is I think when we think about what our policy focuses on, we want it to focus on the things that we want. Focusing on clean energy is different from focusing on the fossil fuels that we should not extract. And that's something I think we all should think through when we um, think about the, the, the different ways of messaging that, that not all policies um, and not all messages um, are threatening in the same way. Some really focus on what we're not doing and some focus on what we're, we're doing. I think that's why in Congress, you've seen a lot of clean energy standards proposed. The policy is inherently about getting more of the thing we we all want. Um, pollution standards it is also a good frame. Nobody wants pollution. Um, so anyway, just sort of thinking through those as we as we do our messaging, but it's not easy. Right, but I think that's a you know smart strategy and sort of thinking messaging around what, what what you know or what we know people don't want, what we don't want in our own lives, right? We don't want pollution. We all are much healthier, right? If we have if we have cleaner air, you know, we want we want a, a healthy, vibrant environment. And if we if we can be sort of how that is 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 positioned, I think is really important. Um, Janice, anything you'd like to add? Um, yeah, I'll yeah, I just will echo what you both have said, Ben and Joe. Um, it reminds me, as I talked about earlier, um, the kind of clean cars standard that we're trying to push for here in Minnesota. Again, the like messaging we're trying to use is this is uh, as much about certainly take trying to reduce the pollution for um, health reasons and environmental justice reasons, but also about 
again, consumer choice. Uh, that's something that we like found that actually uh, tested well, and that and we heard from other states was something that like was used went better <laughs> uh, over. It. So uh, trying to say like this is also a consumer choice issue. This is about getting more options uh, for electric vehicles in Minnesota, and and so yeah, really trying to like run run parallel with the things that we don't want pollution pollution bad public health consequences bad especially with a pandemic going on right now but better options for healthier uh, or vehicles that don't emit as uh, much pollution and then having more options in the market is you know that's a good thing so yeah so just so just to like emphasize that point that it's totally we we have we have to communicate what's that that better world that we are all working for like let's there's a better better world as possible. So like, let's go strive for that and not solely focus on the things that we might be losing in this one. Great, thank you. So I have a, another great question from the audience. Um, considering how social media has become such a vehicle of information and mobilization, how do you personally deal with the spread of misinformation that you may come across on these platforms? Anyone wanna? start first i mean disinformation is is a is a major problem right um you know even this idea that i, I don't know if it was joe you said this uh, you know it's that there are schools that don't teach climate change because they don't believe that climate change is a is a is a problem right um they kind of fall under trump's it's it's a hoax um so how do yeah i'm just curious if you if you choose if you deal with it or you don't that's just that's just you know it's misinformation and there's a lot of misinformation that's out there some of it is very intentional in terms of it's been weaponized as information has been weaponized um so intentionally spreading disinformation for a for a certain aim um is there anything that you have as a um maybe personally in terms of how you how you how you deal with it or how your organization um you know maybe we can sort of speak specifically to the you know from your your current positions yeah um actually i watched a really interesting netflix documentary called the social dilemma i'm not sure if anyone here has seen it it was very interesting and it talks about how social media is geared towards basically if you're going down that path of not believing something it'll keep on giving more and more information on that so like for example they target certain demographics where if you put a google search saying climate change is certain demographics will get not real a hoax and others will get like is very real is going to kill us all it's very different depending on who you are and what you believe in the issue of misinformation is it sounds better than the real information and that's always going to be the struggle is you'd rather have someone say we've created this whole new ice cream flavor that's absolutely delicious and say, you're just gonna have the normal one. Everyone wants that special information that sounds great to them. And it's really a struggle, you know, fighting that when all I've got is it's not good. It's looking worse and worse every day. And everyone else is like, actually, we're all good. It's totally all fine. Don't worry about it. Um, one of the best things is I found is go to like institutional resources. Um, Prize Future is a couple of scientists we work with and I love to send people to them and have them email them and actually talk to them. And I found that really like if you give someone not like a news source, but like a direct scientist that they can talk to, that scientist generally has a better way of like showing the information and teaching that person basically the science behind it. 
And I think that's what I've really found helps is giving that person a link to someone who's directly in it, looking at the signs of it and can explain it a lot better than I can. That's what I've usually found helps. Great. Janice, Ben, anything you'd like to add? I, I'll just say it's a great question. And I, um, uh, maybe I'll lean on my age again um, for, for not being as, as savvy on social media. So I don't do it directly. I, I, I am encouraged by the fact that some of the, the platforms are, are starting to address misinformation. I'm not expert at all enough to know whether that's a viable avenue or not, but it seems like uh, there, there is a there is an actor there who is is feeding folks um, just as Joe described the the, the information that um, will keep them attached to their site. You know, it's just feeding the whatever the diet is they want. That's what the algorithm is trying to do. Um, and that if we there, it, it seems possible to work with them. Um, in, in some of the egregious cases to, to, to get them to stop that. Um, uh, and I, I but, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure I know who is, who is helping to do that tracking to, to, to highlight misinformation and, and, and get it appropriately tagged um, and, and dealt with. But Just a quick follow-up to that. I do think it's interesting because I, I think some of the, the big social media platforms have been called out, right? For not doing enough, for sort of allowing a lot of disinformation to sort of spread, um, to spread through their platforms and activists have said, you know, you, this is, this, 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 we have to, you know, you can't do this. Um, and so I think activism and, and, and some of the work that's been done to sort of call Facebook out, call even Twitter out, call different, you know, different platforms out for, for really propagating false information. Um, it, there's still a lot out there. And I, I think as Joe pointed out, there's a whole algorithmic formula, which will take people down a rabbit hole that will just further, you know, ingratiate them with, with bad information. Um, but I, I think there's more um, attention being brought to the issue of disinformation and how can we, how can we, you know, can we address it right um it's but i think it's 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 still really really challenging <laughs> definitely don't have the answer um i have a quick quick question um and then i'm waiting for a few more i think we have a maybe one more question from from the audience so um ted is going to be running a, a new program starting october 10th it's called countdown and it's 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 about climate change and um, I'm sure many, many people that are listening tonight have heard a TED Talk. So my question to, to, to Ben, Joe, and Janice is, if you had that 60 minute, I'm sorry, that 60 second, that one minute sort of opportunity to kind of get your message through TED, or you had a billboard that you could put up that would, you know, that, that could uh, draw the attention of thousands of people. Like, what would be your, you know, your one-minute message around um, climate change and activism? It's an easy question, right? <laughs> I know. Yeah. Who? who, who I, I. I. If, if Joe or James are ready to go first, I'm. I'm. Um, I'll give you my outline. This is not my. This is not my polished minute. 
I think those, those 10 people are pretty polished. Yeah, um, no, they are. That's what I said. It's only a minute. I didn't say you had to prepare a 40 minute speech, you know, um, with, with no notes. I was just like a one, you know, one minute or a billboard, which, you know, could just be, you know, 10 words. Right. So you yeah. have a choice. <laughs> I mean, the, the, to me, there is, there is just fundamentally, um, a moral obligation to 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 protect future generations from this harm um, that that uh, and we're seeing the effects of climate change already. It is not the future any of us want, and the path to clean energy is one that we can take and will have tremendous dividends. A, a, a world that is uh, healthier for all of us. Um, where 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 our our um, public health is is improved, um, it's a world that will um, create jobs. We are we are in a recession. We need uh, to spur our economy forward. Acting on climate now is going to help us do that, um, uh, and um, and protect us improve current generations and, and, and protect our future. And, and it's something we need to do. That could be improved a lot. I think it was that's pretty good, right? I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. So I would say that, that, that that's, you get an A for that. Very, very, very good, very good. Um, Joe, Janice, who'd like to go next? I can totally go next if you're okay with that, Janice. Great. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So it's very hard for me to summarize everything I'd love to say in a minute. Um, it's an easy question, but thinking of like everything I'd want to say, billboard-wise, very simple say, do your own research. Um, I think that's one of the biggest issues is people don't do their own research. They believe whatever they read. Um, do your own research and find yourself out. I think like one of the really important things is like calling on those youth especially to realize they're the next voting generation. I hate to say it, like, I'm mad. I missed the voting deadline by two months. Very unhappy about it. Like, this is a struggle I have on the day-to-day -day basis. Not happy about it. But, like, I've got the next election, along with every single other teenager who has the next election. And it's, it's something that I think teenagers need to start realizing. And I have this issue with my friends. They're not getting involved. And I think one of the really important things I want to message is you need to get involved. You need to do your own research. You need to start learning more about certain topics. And you need to especially learn more about climate change and realize this affects you. It doesn't affect your children, it affects you. And this is like a 10 year thing. This is a current thing. I mean, you look at the wildfires, you can say not science-based. It's obviously climate change, but it's obvious that climate change has something to do with this, if not the main cause of this. And I hate whenever someone goes, that's just the natural warming period of the earth. You know, this warming has nothing to do with it. I hate when hearing that. And I think one of the important things is people need to start realizing do your research, find out the science, and this is affecting us now, it'll affect us five years, it'll affect us 10 years, it'll affect us for the rest of our lives if we don't do anything about it. And I think that's really what I'd wanna say in that one minute speech. Excellent, and I do hope that you, you use all your excellent uh, skills as an activist to make sure that all the people that are two months and more older than you do vote okay because it's really 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 important for young people who you know who, who can vote vote 
Um, we saw that, you know, we, we, we saw that in 2016 where young people really did not, you know, did not come out in the way that they, um, that they, that they should have. We saw it with Brexit, right? It was kind of this. So I think we have lots of examples where if the young people really come out, it, it makes a difference. So, mm -hmm. all right, Janice, you're next. All right. Uh, yeah. Like you, Joe, it's really hard to put this in a minute. Uh, but yeah, I would say that uh, we just, we have to transform our society to, so that it actually reflects our values. I mean, I, I really hope that uh, we all would say that our values are justice and equity, uh, inclusion, love alongside the things we need for a stable and healthy climate you know, between clean air and water and food. Uh, so, so what kind of world do we live in or do we want to live in? Um, that would still deny those things to to so many people. That's not a world I want to live in, certainly. And and unfortunately, it's the kind of it's the current state. So we have a lot of work to do to completely transform everything in our society so that it actually gets us to the place that we're all fighting for. Uh, so in order to do that, uh, I think we have to just live with those values and radiate them every single day and everywhere everywhere that you are. Um, everywhere that you, everywhere that everything that you do and everywhere that you are, you can, you can be an activist. Uh, you know, activism I, I can and frankly should be something that everyone engages in. And it doesn't always look like strikes, even though those are amazing, right? It doesn't always look like marches and protests, uh, even though that those things are really critical tools, but they also have to just be in every space in our schools, like you're doing, Joe, and in law, like Ben is doing, and currently in schools like you're doing, Dr. Hussain, right? And the way that we teach uh, about activism and resistance and, and, the, and how these things are integral to a climate, a just climate future. Um, and I'm doing that in the nonprofit and policy work that I do, but I mean, from everywhere to where you eat, <laughs> to where you go, to uh, where you pray, right? Like everywhere in our lives has to, we have to live with these values and, and bring activism to everything that we do. And we can all, we are all capable of that. And we all have to. So um, be an activist in every way that you can. Thank you. It was really beautifully said. Um, thank you all so very much. I mean, this has been, I've so enjoyed learning from you all. Um, I'm grateful to everything that you shared with our audience tonight. And um, I'm inspired by the tremendous work that you do day in and day out. And, uh, and I know I'm sure I can speak for everyone in the audience that we really are grateful and that we, we hope that you continue to, to forge forward and uh, we, need, we need you. Uh, and uh, just, just, just really grateful and uh, thank you. Thank you very much for, for this evening and uh, many thanks to the Alliance for Climate Change and Environment for, for hosting this evening's really important event and uh, to the audience, go out and just go, go do it, right? As, as um, you know, as Janice said, we, we, all, we all need to be activists. So thank you. Definitely, couldn't, couldn't have put it better myself. Thank you for that, Dr. Hussain. Um, again, thank you to the panel. Uh, appreciate all the insights and perspective you guys shared. You are uh, all truly doing the work that needs to be done for a brighter future. Um, thank you, Dr. Kassain, for, for guiding this conversation so gracefully. Uh, really well done. And uh, yeah, I'm glad we are getting to share this with the audience who was able to tune in and, and the audience who will view the recorded version. So um, thank you all if, uh, for future ACE events. Uh, feel free to follow us on Instagram at ace underscore NYU Wagner. 
Um, we'll be sending out our listserv information as well if you want to subscribe to emails for any pending events we have for the rest of the semester and going forward. But uh, with that, I'll close things out. Thank you all and, and have an excellent night. I appreciate you tuning in.
different ways of messaging that, that not all policies um, and not all messages um, are threatening in the same way. Some really focus on what we're not doing and some focus on what we're, we're doing. I think that's why in Congress, you've seen a lot of clean energy standards proposed. The policy is inherently about getting more of the thing we, we all want. Um, pollution standards it is also a good frame. Nobody wants pollution. Um, so anyway, just sort of thinking through those as we, as we do our messaging, but it's not easy. Right, but I think that's a you know smart strategy and sort of thinking messaging around what 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 you know or what we know people don't want what we don't want in our own lives right we don't want pollution we all are much healthier right if we have if we have cleaner air you know we want we want a, a healthy vibrant environment and if we if we can be sort of how that is 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 positioned I think is really important um, Janice anything you'd like to add. Um, yeah, I'll, yeah, I just will echo what you both have said, Ben and Joe. Um, it reminds me, as I talked about earlier, um, the kind of clean cars standard that we're trying to push for here in Minnesota. Again, the like messaging we're trying to use is this is uh, as much about certainly take trying to reduce the pollution for um, health reasons and environmental justice reasons, but also about again consumer choice. Uh, that's something that we like found that actually. Uh, tested well and that and we heard from other states was something that like was used went better <laughs> uh over it. so uh trying to say like this is also a consumer choice issue this is about getting more options uh for electric vehicles in minnesota and and so yeah really trying to like run uh, run parallel with the things that we don't want pollution pollution bad public health consequences bad especially with a pandemic going on right now but better options for healthier uh, or vehicles that don't emit as uh, much pollution and then having more options in the market is that's a good thing. So yeah, so just, so just to like emphasize that point that it's totally, we, we, have, we have to communicate what's that, that better world that we are all working for. Like let's, there's a better, better world as possible. So like, let's go strive for that and not solely focus on the things that we might be losing in this one. Great, thank you. So I have a, another great question from the audience. Um, considering how social media has become such a vehicle of information and mobilization, how do you personally deal with the spread of misinformation that you may come across on these platforms? Anyone wanna start first? I mean, disinformation is is a, is a major problem, right? Um, you know, even this idea that I, I don't know if it was Joe, you said this, uh, you know, it's that there are schools that don't teach climate change because they don't believe that climate change is a is a is a problem, right? Um, they kind of fall under Trump's. It's it's a hoax. Um, so how do yeah? I'm just curious if you if you choose if you deal with it or you don't that's just that's just you know it's misinformation and there's a lot of misinformation that's out there some of it is very intentional in terms of it's been weaponized as information has been weaponized um so intentionally spreading disinformation for a for a certain aim um is there anything that you have as a um maybe personally in terms of how you how you how you deal with it or how your organization um you know maybe we can sort of speak 
specifically to the, you know, from your, your current positions? Yeah. Um, actually, I watched a really interesting Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma. I'm not sure if anyone here has seen it. It was very interesting. And it talks about how social media is geared towards, basically, if you're going down that path of not believing something, it'll keep on giving more and more information on that. So like, for example, they target certain demographics where if you put a Google search saying climate change is certain demographics will get not real a hoax and others will get like is very real is going to kill us all. It's very different depending on who you are and what you believe in. The issue of misinformation is it sounds better than the real information. And that's always going to be the struggle is you'd rather have someone say we've created this whole new ice cream flavor that's absolutely delicious and say you're just going to have the normal one. Everyone wants that special information that sounds great to them. And it's really a struggle, you know, fighting that when all I've got is it's not good. It's looking worse and worse every day. And everyone else is like, actually, we're all good. It's totally all fine. Don't worry about it. Um, one of the best things is I found is go to like institutional resources. Um, for ICU, just a couple of scientists we work with. And I love to send people to them and have them email them and actually talk to them. And I found that really like, if you give someone not like a news source, like a direct scientist that they can talk to, that scientist generally has a better way of like showing the information and teaching that person basically the science behind it. And I think that's what I've really found helps is giving that person a link to someone who's directly in it, looking at the signs of it and can explain it a lot better than I can. That's what I've usually found helps. Great. Janice, Ben, anything you'd like to add? I, I'll just say it's a great question, and I um, uh, maybe I'll lean on my age again um, for for not being as as savvy on social media. So I don't do it directly. I I I am encouraged by the fact that some of the the platforms are are starting to address misinformation. I'm not expert at all enough to know whether that's a viable avenue or not, but it seems like. Uh, there, there is a, there is an actor there who is, is feeding folks, um, just as Joe described, the, the, the information that um, will keep them attached to their site. You know, just feeding the whatever the diet is they want. That's what the algorithm is trying to do. Um, and that if we, there, it, it seems possible to work with them. Um, in, in some of the egregious cases to, to, to get them to stop that. Um, uh, and I, I but, but I'm not sure, I'm not sure I know who is, who is helping to do that tracking to, to, to highlight misinformation and, and, and get it appropriately tagged um, and, and dealt with. But. Just a quick follow-up to that. I do think it's interesting because I, I think some of the, the big social media platforms have been called out, right, for not doing enough, for sort of allowing a lot of disinformation to sort of spread, um, to spread through their platforms. And activists have said, you know, you, this is, this, 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 we have to, you know, you can't do this. Um, and so I think activism and, and, and some of the work that's been done to sort of call Facebook out, call even Twitter out, call different, you know, different platforms out for, for really propagating false information. Um, it, there's still a lot out there. And I, I think as Joe pointed out, there's a whole algorithmic formula which will take people down a rabbit hole that will just further 
you know, ingratiate them with, with bad information. Um, but I, I think there's more um, attention being brought to the issue of disinformation and how can we, how can we, you know, how can we address it, right? Um, it's, but I think it's, it's, it's still really, really challenging. <laughs> Definitely don't have the answer. Um, I have a quick, quick question, um, and then I'm waiting for a few more. I think we have a, maybe one more question from, from the audience. So, um, Ted is going to be running a, a new program starting October 10th. It's called Countdown, and it's, 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 it's about climate change. And um, I'm sure many, many people that are listening tonight have heard a TED Talk. So my question to, to, to Ben, Joe, and Janice is, if you had that 60 minute, I'm sorry, that 60 second, that one minute sort of opportunity to kind of get your message through TED, or you had a billboard that you could put up that would, you know, that, that could uh, draw the attention of thousands of people, like what would be your, you know, your one minute message around um, climate change and activism? It's an easy question, right? <laughs> I know, yeah, who, who, who I, 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 if, if Joe or Janice are ready to go first, I'm, I'm, um, I'll give you my outline. This is not my, this is not my polished minute. I think those those ten people are pretty polished. Yeah, um, no, they are. That's what I said. It's only a minute. I didn't say you had to prepare a forty-minute speech, you know, um, with with no notes. I was just like a one, you know, one minute or a billboard, which you know could just be, you know, ten words, right? So you yeah. have a choice. <laughs> I mean, the the to me there is there is just fundamentally um, a, a moral obligation to 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 protect future generations from this harm. Um, that, that uh, and we're seeing the effects of climate change already. It is not the future any of us want. And the path to clean energy is one that we can take and will have tremendous dividends of, of a world that is uh, healthier for all of us, um, where, where, where our, our um, public health is, is improved. Um, it's a world that will um, create jobs. We are, we are in a recession. We need uh, to spur our economy forward. Acting on climate now is going to help us do that um, uh, and, um, and protect us, improve current generations and, and, and protect our future. And, and it's something we need to do. That could be improved a lot. I think it was pretty good, right? I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. So I would say that that, that, that's, you get an A for that. Very, very, very good. Very good. Um, Joe, Janice, who'd like to go next? I can totally go next if you're okay with that, Janice. Great. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So it's very hard for me to summarize everything I'd love to say in a minute. Um, <laughs> it's an easy question, but thinking of like everything I'd want to say, billboard-wise, very simple say do your own research um i think that's one of the biggest issues is people don't do their own research they believe whatever they read um do your own research and find yourself out i think like one of the really important things is like calling on those youth especially to realize they're the next voting generation i hate to say it like i'm mad i missed the voting deadline by two months very unhappy about it like this is a struggle i have on the day-to-day -day basis not happy about it but like 
I've got the next election along with every single other teenager who has the next election. And it's, it's something that I think teenagers need to start realizing. And I have this issue with my friends. They're not getting involved. And I think one of the really important things I want to message is you need to get involved. You need to do your own research. You need to start learning more about certain topics. And you need to especially learn more about climate change and realize this affects you. It doesn't affect your children. It affects you. And this is like a 10-year thing. This is a current thing. I mean, you look at the wildfires. You can say not science-based. It's obviously climate change, but it's obvious that climate change has something to do with this, if not the main cause of this. And I hate whenever someone goes, that's just the natural warming period of the earth. You know, this warming has nothing to do with it. I hate when hearing that. And I think one of the important things is people need to start realizing, do your research, find out the science. And this is affecting us now. It'll affect us five years. It'll affect us 10 years. It'll affect us for the rest of our lives if we don't do anything about it. And I think that's really what I'd want to say in that one minute speech. Excellent. And I do hope that you you use all your excellent uh, skills as an activist to make sure that all the people that are two months and more older than you do vote. Okay, because it's really, really, really important for young people who, you know, who, who can vote vote. Um, we saw that, you know, we, we, we saw that in 2016, where young people really did not, you know, did not come out in the way that they, um, that they, that they should have. We saw it with Brexit, right? It was kind of this, so I think we have lots of examples where if the young people really come out, it, it makes a difference. So, mm -hmm. all right, Janice, you're next. All right. Uh, yeah, like you, Joe, it's really hard to put this in a minute. Uh, but yeah, I would say that uh, we just, we have to transform our society to, so that it actually reflects our values. I mean, I, I really hope that uh, we all would say that our values are justice and equity, uh, inclusion, love alongside the things we need for a stable and healthy climate you know, between clean air and water and food. Uh, so, so what kind of world do we live in or do we want to live in? Um, that would still deny those things to to so many people. That's not a world I want to live in, certainly. And and unfortunately, it's the kind of it's the current state. So we have a lot of work to do to completely transform everything in our society so that it actually gets us to the place that we're all fighting for. Uh, so in order to do that, uh, I think we have to just live with those values and radiate them every single day and everywhere everywhere that you are. Um, everywhere that you, everywhere that everything that you do and everywhere that you are, you can, you can be an activist. Uh, you know, activism I, I can and frankly should be something that everyone engages in. And it doesn't always look like strikes, even though those are amazing, right? It doesn't always look like marches and protests, uh, even though that those things are really critical tools, but they also have to just be in every space in our schools, like you're doing, Joe, and in law, like Ben is doing, and currently in schools like you're doing, Dr. Hussain, right? And the way that we teach uh, about activism and resistance and, and, the, and how these things are integral to a climate, a just climate future. Um, and I'm doing that in the nonprofit and policy work that I do, but I mean, from everywhere to where you eat, <laughs> to where you go to, uh, where you pray, right? Like everywhere in our lives has to, we have to live with these values and, and bring activism to everything that we do. And we can all, we are all capable of that. And we all have to. So um, be an activist in every way that you can. Thank you. It was really beautifully said. Um, thank you all so very much. I mean, this has been, I've so enjoyed 
learning from you all. Um, I'm grateful to everything that you shared with our audience tonight. And um, I'm inspired by the tremendous work that you do day in and day out. And, uh, and I know I'm sure I can speak for everyone in the audience that we really are grateful and that we, we hope that you continue to, to forge forward and uh, we, need, we need you. Uh, and uh, just, just, just really grateful. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much for, for this evening. And uh, many thanks to the Alliance for Climate Change and Environment for, for hosting this evening's really important event. And uh, to the audience, go out and just go, go do it, right? As, as um, you know, as Janice said, we, we, all, we all need to be activists. So thank you. Thank you. Definitely, couldn't, couldn't have put it better myself. Thank you for that, Dr. Kassane. Um, again, thank you to the panel. Uh, appreciate all the insights and perspective you guys shared. You are uh, all truly doing the work that needs to be done for a brighter future. Um, thank you, Dr. Kassain, for, for guiding this conversation so gracefully. Uh, really well done. And uh, yeah, I'm glad we are getting to share this with the audience who was able to tune in and, and the audience who will view the recorded version. So um, thank you all if, uh, for future ACE events. Uh, feel free to follow us on Instagram at ACE underscore NYU Wagner. Um, we'll be sending out our listserv information as well if you want to subscribe to emails for any pending events we have for the rest of the semester and going forward. But uh, with that, I'll close things out. Thank you all and, and have an excellent night. I appreciate you tuning in.